Thanks for joining for uh, this episode of the Inner Circle Podcast. Uh, my guest this week is Mike Elgin. So, Mike, if you could, uh, I guess, introduce yourself, let everyone know what you do, and 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 uh, we'll uh, get to business. Sure, I am a uh, writer. I write uh, opinion columns, and I've written one book, uh, little podcasts, uh, free blogs, um, etc. And um, I also, I guess probably one of the interesting things uh, that I do is I live internationally. So my wife and I don't have a regular uh, house or apartment or anything like that. We move from place to place all the time. Uh, right now I'm in Mexico City. And we've been doing this for about 13, 14 years, with the exception of two years when I was uh, in Northern California. So I started out in uh, the newspaper business as a journalist, uh, entered into the uh, magazine business around 1990 uh, with Windows Magazine, which I edited in some capacity or another throughout almost the entire decade. And then since then, I've been uh, a freelance uh, writer, uh, specializing in opinion columns, although I don't specialize in specific content. I read about almost all technology. Um, from consumer tech to enterprise security. And uh, that's about it. I write like a maniac, and I've been doing it for many, many years. Yeah, yes, you have. And I, I, I can't even tell you, you know, really, like, how far back I think, um, you know, we've known each other or I've known of you. I wanted to, Were you writing, were you freelancing for Computer World? Uh, yes. Um, so I guess, I don't know, maybe since 2003 or something like that too, 2002. Um, I had been freelancer for Computer World. I transitioned uh, at IDG from Computer World to Insider Pro, which is a new uh, paid publication uh, for IDG. So as of like a month or two ago, I've been writing for Insider Pro instead of Computer World. Okay. And, you know, 2000, 2002, 2003 is kind of when I got into writing at all. I mean, I was uh, working on the IT side and got into security and um, uh, a, a friend of my wife's was the uh, writer for the about.com site for like pregnancy um, you know, okay. and, and about.com had a, had a site for like every topic you could think of and internet security happened to be available. And she said, you know, she's told my wife, she said, Hey, you should have Tony, uh, look into that just as, you know, something to do. And when I, when I did that, I just thought it was going to be resume fodder. I thought it would be something cool to be able to go to my boss at, you know, for quarterly review or whatever annual review and be like, Hey, look, I wrote these things and they're on the internet. I'm famous. Um, yeah, I didn't think it would be. A career. I didn't think I. I didn't really think I'd make money. <laughs> never, right. never mind making it a career. Uh, you know. But uh, you know, seventeen years later, here we are. Um, it's funny how we all get into this racket. Uh, people come from all all kinds of different. Uh, come through all kinds of different windows. I um, when when we were at Windows Magazine, we were hiring you know uh, columnists, and you know some of them. The minority were journalists. One was a developer. Another one was an IT person. Another one um, was just a, a participant in our message board who was brilliantly answering everyone's questions. And so she turned pro. But it's like 
you know, a combination of the ability to communicate plus knowledge of of the of the technolo- you know, technology space right. is is the combination, obviously, and the and the, uh, the rarest one of those is the knowledge about the technology. It it, it is it is, and it, so it's it's sort of funny because uh, coming out of high school, like I, I never had any aspirations to be a writer in any capacity. That wasn't like a thing I planned on doing. Um, I, I wasn't averse to writing. It just wasn't a thing I ever thought of doing. Um, my best friend, however, uh, went to college, majored in English. Like his whole like life aspiration was to be a writer. And then you fast forward, you know, 10 years, 10, 20, whatever. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm making a living as a writer. He's, you know, basically not using his degree. Um, <laughs> it's just kind yeah. of the way, kind yeah. of the way things go. My story is very similar. I, um, in high school, I just absolutely detested school and uh, absolutely uh, did not, you know, make do anything in terms of writing. Uh, if you were to, if you were to guess, um, knowing me in high school, you would have guessed I was probably one of the last people to write for a living. But then, in in uh, you know, I went I went to become a recording engineer in L.A. when I was 17. I left school one year early. Um, with an equivalency degree. And after a year of engineering, uh, I had the brilliant uh, observation that, gosh, engineers tend to be more educated than I am. So I thought I'd go to school for engineering. That went back, went to college and discovered that I loved uh, all kinds of subjects. Ended up being a political science major, wrote a bunch of papers, like really kind of uh, learned how to write in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, my obsession was uh, international relations and I wanted to be a diplomat um, out of school of all things. And, but I was obsessed with newspapers as a, as a reader. Um, and my mother happened to be uh, a, a head of, head of uh, public relations for UCSB and just basically got me an interview. The interview paid off. I got a job as a writer. I, as a reporter for a year, I was a managing editor for a year, and then I realized what I loved about my job was the, uh, the the computers I was using, the tools that we were using to put the newspaper together instead of local water politics. <laughs> and so, and so it's uh, yeah. I, I mean, I probably wasn't a good writer until I was twenty five. Yeah. Well, and you know, you, you you said you know one of the keys uh, you know for Windows Magazine was you know, finding people who understood the technology, understood that side of things. And when I started writing for about.com, doing the internet and network security site, you know, again, I was coming from a background as someone who was a network admin and had switched over to security and had just gotten my CISSP uh, credential. And so, you know, I was, I was first and foremost a practitioner of these things. And secondly, I was a writer. And that served me very well because, I mean, the audience, yeah. for, I mean, I, I, I don't know how many people are familiar with about.com. It, it went through a bunch of transitions and now it's LifeWire or something like that. Um, yeah. But the audience, you know, it was basically like writing for my grandparents or whatever. You know, it's like it was, you were writing for novices. You were writing for people who barely understand how to turn the computer on um, yeah. as, the, as the target audience. And what that did for me early on is it made me really good at coming up with uh, like anecdotes 
coming up with uh, you know the, the some some kind of a way to you know convey the information um, and, and in a way that, that people could understand and and getting away from tech speak and to this day that's still a thing that like you know company you know fortune 100 fortune 500 companies hire me to do writing for them because I am uniquely suited to be able to both understand what the engineer is telling me from a technological perspective and put it into English that the audience can understand. Right. One of those skills and the, uh, the skills of a writer are not apparent to readers always, but one of the big skills of writers is related to something called the curse of knowledge. So in order to be a good writer, you have to understand what people know and don't know. And that's very different from what you know and don't know. And so you, you see really good writers, for example, uh, do a number of things. If they're interviewing someone, they ask questions um, uh, for which they already know the answer. Uh, and it, the knowledge of the subject matter enables you to craft a better question so that the person answering it will give a better answer that's more useful and valuable to the reader. Right. The, it, but but, it, but it, a lot of writers may be good with uh, lang you know, language and grammar and all that kind of stuff. But, but this curse of knowledge can really get you because you, if you don't understand what your readers don't know, then you're going to confuse them and uh, they're, they're going to skim and then you know, stop reading and you're not going to succeed as a writer. Right. Uh, on, a, on a related note, um, you know, one of the things that I've done over the years and that I do you know, on TechSpective uh, frequently is product reviews. I mean, I've got, my, my office is literally like I'm, I'm, I'm you know, armpits deep in stuff here of that the, there's waiting for me to play with and review. Yeah. And, um, a number of years ago I was, I was reviewing something and I mean, I thought, I thought it was great. Um, I want to say it was a laptop or, or something, but I was like, Hey man, this is, this is, this is an awesome laptop. I love this thing. And I wrote this great review of it saying that, you know, this is the thing everyone should go get one of these. And my wife looked at it and she said, okay, but would your opinion be the same if they didn't send that to you for free to play with? Like, what, would, you, would you say the same thing if you had to spend your own $3,000 to buy it? Right. And I was like, huh, that is a different perspective, isn't it? And so yeah. I've tried to use that ever since then to be like, yeah, it's really, it's really easy to review it kind of in a vacuum and be like, wow, this is a great thing. Um, yeah. It's a whole different thing to say, would I actually go out and buy this thing? Yeah. Well, and, and also to the point, I don't know about the specifics of that review, but the other point is, would you buy this one instead of the other one? So just because right. something is a great product doesn't mean that people should buy it. And a lot of, um, so there, there are a whole bunch of things that tech journal, can we, can we start harping and, and, and ragging on tech journalist uh, attitudes and approaches? We, if that's okay, they, you know, there's a lot of, there, there is some very, very high quality tech journalism out there. It exists, but the vast majority of it is terrible because the, uh, the journalists themselves make a, a whole bunch of mistakes or not mistakes. They, they, they are lazy sometimes, or they, they, they don't think like it's a big problem. So this is a perfect example. Let's say, Let's say there's a um, hundred products in a specific space in, in, in widget A, and uh, and ten of them are totally usable and will completely valuable. Ninety ninety of them are not worth buying in, by anyone at all. Three of them are really good, and somebody sends you the third best one, 
and it's good. It's great. That's the best one you've ever used as a, as a human being. And, and it's, first of all, it's malpractice, I think, to say, oh, yeah, it's great. You should buy it. Uh, because you haven't helped them. You, 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 the, the fact that you have it in your hands is an accident of somebody's marketing uh, plan. And that's not a good reason for somebody else to buy something. The, the other more common bit of malpractice is to say, here are the top 30 products that you should consider. Oh, wait a minute. You're the reviewer. You're the one who's supposed to consider it. Right. What are they supposed to do? Buy 30 products and send back 29? I mean, that's useless information. Right. Unless it's a free product in which they can download it or whatever, in, in which case maybe it's not the end of the world. Another um, uh, huge mistake, very common in tech journals, is that people get confused and think that if the product is good in any way, they're supposed to sell it. If they really do a sales pitch, they save the price for the end because they really want to build you up and really love it until the end where they say, and it's only blah, 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 available here. Uh, and that's, you're not supposed to sell it. You're supposed to be, you're supposed to be honest about it, give the facts that are relevant to them, give some perspective on it, but you should not care at all whether the company succeeds or fails, whether the product succeeds or fails, or whether, uh, whether the company uh, benefits or doesn't benefit from your review. It should purely be about informing the user. Right. And even the best products have bad things about them, and you should specify what those bad things are. And it doesn't mean that you have to find a bad thing for every product, or you have to you know, be you know, equivalent in every way, in any way. It's like there's such a <clears throat> lack of perspective about what we're doing, why we're doing it, and... And, and what is the right way to go about doing it? And, and it's, sometimes it's, it's awfully disappointing. I was listening to a podcast the other day. I won't mention the podcast or the journalist. Um, but somebody was uh, talking about a big, uh, a big Microsoft event coming up. And the journalist said, oh, yeah, we have all this inside information. We got these leaks about the product. But I don't want I don't want to tell you about it and I don't want to write about it until after the event because Microsoft works so hard to keep this information secret. And you know, it kind of also ruins the event if if you know what's coming in advance. This person should be disbarred if in fact there was a uh, a bar association for journalists. Um and that's just malpractice. Your job is to get all the facts you can that are useful or valuable in some way to to the reader and fully disclose them. It's not about helping Microsoft have an exciting event. Ridiculous. That's I mean, true. I mean, I, 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 un, unless, unless that journalist had agreed to an embargo, in which case they shouldn't have revealed that they knew anything at all. Right. And, and journalists, you know, you know, the, the whole embargo thing is all, another weird thing about this business. Um, I, I actually, and I'm sure you have too, got, gotten press releases it's more, more lately than, than in the past where they give you all the information and then say, this is embargo. Right. It's an un unsolicited pitch. And then uh, you know, this is under embargo. I'm like, no, it's not. No, exactly. <laughs> if I didn't agree to the embargo and you sent me the information, all bets are off. Exactly. And as soon as somebody breaks the embargo, my embargo is off. It's like, well, that's, that, that's actually a very frustrating thing for me. Like, there, there was one time many, many years ago uh, when I was writing for PC World that I screwed up big. Um, I scheduled a post to go live. Um, and I screwed yeah. up the time zone Yeah, and it went live like two hours early and the vendor was furious and you know, I, I was scrambling to try to take the, the post down and, 
and and the, I mean, it, you know, it wasn't the end of the world. I mean, you know, the, the embargo time is you know just marketing. You know, so that you know nobody's nobody's gonna die. <laughs> right. But, right. But but I remember being on that end of that, and I go out of my way when I do agree to an embargo to make sure that I honor that embargo. Right. And not everyone does. In fact, almost every time someone breaks the embargo, it's really just a matter of you know trying to watch for okay, well when when when's the embargo right. going to break? And like recently, I, I went to um, I went to New York for the Microsoft Surface unveiling event. Right. Yeah. And I had been briefed um, ahead of time under embargo about uh -huh. things we were going to see there. Um, and so I knew before the event that they were going to reveal a dual screen, like folding surface. And, yeah. and the thing is, I knew, I, you know, I didn't know exactly which journalists, but I knew within reason who else had received that information. And there's one journalist in particular, I'm not going to name names, who then proceeded to, over the course of like a week before leading up to the event, keep posting things that were like dropping hints, not revealing that he knew, knew it, but making it sound like he was smarter than he was. Like, like, yeah. he, like he was making the, the, these, these accurate predictions, you know, and then, and, then, and then you go to the event and you find out that it's true. And then he looks like a genius because it's like, oh, yeah. wow, he was saying all these things. And it's like, well, no, he's not a genius. He was revealing information he was given. Exactly. He's spoon-feeding things. This is, a, this is a variant on the theme of access journalism where people do journalism to... Um, to uh, aggrandize themselves uh, based on the information that's been spoon-fed to them. Um, and the other part of it is that people want to say, hey, look at me, I'm hanging out with these uh, big shots. This is why people go to the Apple event, by the way. I don't know, have you ever been to an Apple event? I have, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna derail you for a little bit. I've never been, yeah. I've never even been invited. Yeah. Yes. But in 2012, when Tim Cook was giving the uh, keynote, he, the Apple, Apple, quoted me i have it right here on my wall like i, I can like touch it right now with my hand i, I remember that i have I it framed that. i have it a framed yeah. picture of tim cook standing in front of a giant quote from me that apple not only did they not invite me to the event but they never even they, they never let me know up front that i was going to be quoted or whatever i ended up having right. to go to um uh i went to nilay patel yeah to get a picture because PC world didn't even have a good shot of this, of this. And I was like, wow, I'd like to frame that. And I, so I, I found a, a competing, <laughs> a competing out, outlet that had a better picture. And I said, Hey, can I, you know, you know, it's just for my own personal use. Can I have the, the raw image? And they, and they were nice enough to give it to me. Yeah. Um, but, but I had gone, I, I contacted Apple and I was like, Hey, can I get, you know, can you guys send me a picture of that? And Apple was like, no, sorry, we can't help you. And I was like, well, let me get this yeah. straight. I, it was good enough for you to quote me, but you can't even right. send me a picture of it or invite me to the event. Right. That's Apple. <laughs> That's Apple in a nutshell. Yeah, I'm, I've been blacklisted for years because I used to uh, write for, I um, uh, can't even remember the name of the blog now, but I, I used to write a lot about Apple and I happened to tell the truth about Apple and Steve Jobs, which you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to be a fawning sycophant um and so i was on the blacklist for a long time but in any event the, the apple events in particular are they're so heavily covered there's not a there's not a scrap of information that takes place at the apple event that isn't covered by hundreds of or thousands 
of publications. Uh, there's there's only one reason to go to an Apple event, and it's a bad reason. The reason is to go and take your own photo of the stuff in the demo area afterwards, uh, so you don't have to use somebody else's photo. You don't have to use a stock photo from Apple. Um, that's the only reason because they're not going to you're not going to corner Tim Cook and say, hey, yeah, give me some give me a scoop here, Tim. And he's like, oh yeah, here's the secret nobody else knows. That's never going to happen. Never. Right. Even there's, the there's even no the reason. Even the Microsoft event, like I, you know, I, I paid for myself to go, but initially when I got the invite, I was like, well, no, I'm not going to go. I mean, I get invited to all kinds of things that I turn down because if I'm paying for the travel out of my pocket, <laughs> then it's not worth it. And this, right. this was, this was also that case where I was initially like, I appreciate the invitation, but no, but then I happened to do a, a quick search and found out that I could get a uh, round trip airfare to New York for like $110. Wow. And so I was like, you know what, for $110, I'll go. I didn't even get a hotel. I, I, I landed at like 2 a.m. on the, the day of the event. I right. just hung out in New York until 10 a.m. when the event started. I went to the event and then I went back to the airport and flew home. The difference is that at a Microsoft event, you can buttonhole a Microsoft person and get some information out of them. You know, in the, right. in the cocktail hour or whatever. Or, and, and, you know, the developer events, of course, have a gazillion sessions, which are like, super valuable and um you know but but apple events are uniquely overcovered, and apple itself is uniquely tight-lipped and disciplined right. about not letting you know any information except to how excited they are that they have the best iphone they've ever produced and et cetera et cetera so it, it's it's really um uh my point is the reason people go is me too journalism it's like right. look at me i'm i'm 15 feet away from tim cook I'm hobnobbing with uh, with, with, all, uh, with uh, all these Microsoft executives, and I was invited to this event. And therefore, look right. at me. And and it's really it's really disappointing. Uh, I get uh, I'm endlessly disappointed in my colleagues in the tech journalism uh, industry. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wanted to uh, one of the things you talked about when talking about there's kind of like two two kinds of reviews. Um. What you know when companies send me a product they i mean and i understand why they want this but the, the the vendor is generally looking for like a one week turnaround you know they want me to play with the device and have the review published you know by by friday yes and i don't do that Right. Um, I don't, and, 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 and actually, and, and um, it actually sort of relates to what we were just talking about with, with Apple and the coverage. When I was writing for PC World, I mean, it was part of my job was to race to be part of that, you know, first barrage of breaking news. You know, that, that was my job was to watch Google News and to, to watch what was going on and, and to, to, you know, not, you know to, to try and say something smart, but as quickly as possible. Right. And knowing that everybody was going to say the same thing because, you know, you all just saw the same event. You all just got the same information. And yeah. so as soon as I could, I got out of that game. And yeah. um, from, from that perspective, like I still think there's value in me providing my opinion or perspective on what was presented or said, but I want it to be thoughtful. And so I'm like, you know what, you guys, you guys all fight each other for, you know, to be tops on Google for, for, you know, in the first five minutes after the event, I'm going to take a day or two to think about it. And then I'm going to write something that I think is, is, you know, provides a little bit more insight into what went down. And, and, and the same thing is true on the review side where it's like, 
I feel like a lot of the reviews that you get um, when it's like, you know, and like, I mean, Microsoft has, has sent me some surface devices to play with and, you know, and, and they send it to me and they say, okay, this is when the embargo lifts for this device review. Um, and, and it's generally, like I said, like, you know, you have about a week to play with it before the review lift, the embargo lifts. Yeah. And so the embargo lifts and there's a bunch of reviews and, and, right. and I go and I look at the reviews, but it's like, I don't feel like they're really reviews, reviews. They're, they're, they're regurgitations of the data sheet. Right. Um, because you didn't really have time to play with it really. And a lot of times, like when I, especially like when I've done like household items, like, uh, you know, I've reviewed like, uh, actually Roomba, I don't think has ever sent me something, but I've reviewed a number of robot vacuums. Yeah. Um, and out of the box, I mean, if you, if you just take it out of the box, you plug it in, it goes and cleans your house. You're like, wow, this is awesome. You know, so if you wrote the review on day one, it would be a totally yeah. different review <laughs> than when you right. write the review on day 30 and you're like, oh, turns out, you know, this piece just broke off for no apparent reason and it won't hold the charge. And, you know, it's like, so there, to, to me, there's a lot of value in doing a longer review, like, and actually really right. using it the way someone is going to use it and not just using it just long enough to basically verify what the data sheet says. Right. The PC Mag back in the 90s, uh, when it was a print publication, used to have a uh, regular feature called second looks or second, you know, I used to call it second thoughts, but second looks where they would take a product that was reviewed by PC Magazine and give an updated opinion about it for that exact same reason. They would basically say, well, we told you this thing was, uh, was terrible. And it didn't, you know, it didn't, uh, this XYZ didn't work, but they issued a patch and now it all works and, you know, it's much better now. Or right. the opposite. They would say, oh, we said it was great, but, you know, it turns out it has, you know, the battery life uh, is cut in half after, you know, 30 days of use. And, and uh, we're sorry, but you really shouldn't buy this. And, you know, which is a great idea for a print publication that, you know, was, right. I guess they were twice monthly. It was a good idea to follow up and you should always follow up. And this is, a, this is the beauty of, uh, of owning your own tech publication, right? Because you can follow up or you, you know, re revisit things all you want. There's no, there's no downside. When you're, when you're a writer getting paid a salary or, 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 or a fee, they're not going to pay you, uh, the same fee for a, an update <laughs> as they did for the original piece. Right. But if you own your own thing or you're, you're a blogger, then you can, you can constantly update. And I do that all the time. I'm always referring back to things I wrote before. And um, revising my opinion about about various things. I don't do reviews anymore, but uh, but no matter what it is, if if the perspective or opinion changes, you really should uh, at least inform your the most uh, you know the readers who are really paying attention that your perspective has changed. Right. No, I, I think that makes sense. Well, you know, I, I, I told you the story about, uh, you know, writing reviews and having my wife uh, uh, help me kind of put that in perspective. And actually from that point on, it, it reminded me that when, when, <coughs> excuse me, when we were in high school, my best friend and I used to watch, uh, you know, we'd look at like movie reviews and, you know, Siskel and Ebert were the, 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 the big thing. And you'd right. watch Siskel and Ebert and, we, we always used to kind of poke fun at like sort of how pretentious the reviews were. You know, it's like they'd watch a movie, you know, they, they'd pan something like, you know, Star Wars or Indiana Jones, 
you know, and be like, I don't know, it's just, you know, frivolous junk. And then, and then some other movie that was, you know, some like boring artsy, you know, piece of crap, <laughs> you know, they'd go yeah. on and on about how, how, how great the directing was and, and, the, and the musical score. And, and not to say that those things aren't, don't provide some value, but, but we used to sit there and say, you know what, we're going to be, we're going to be the new Siskel and Ebert, but our rating system, instead of thumbs up, thumbs down and talking about pretentious directorial things, our rating system is going to be how much money would you spend to see this movie? Yeah. And that's it. Cause, cause in the end, right. you know, when, when you're, when you're talking about star Wars or you're talking about Indiana Jones, my, I mean, my, my bar, uh, artistically is really low. My bar is just, you know, was it worth $10 and two hours of my life? Yeah. And, and that's how I, and that's how sort of, you know, and I, so now I try to bring that sort of similar perspective to my tech reviews of not, is this the greatest thing ever? Is this going to solve all of your problems or is this, you know, total crap? It's, it's based on what it does and what it costs. Is this something that would be worth your time and effort to own? Yeah. That's a, that's a great metric too. And, and, uh, that's the right, I think that's the right metric. Um, you really, this is uh, again, back to the curse of knowledge. What do people want from your review? They want to be in a position to have confidence in a decision related to that product. Uh, whether to buy it, rent it, don't buy it, look at another product. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of product reviews have to be granular in terms of who it's for. Oh, if you, if you never, uh, if you only use this product sitting in your home office, then this product's for you, but if you ever want to take it around and go to Starbucks or whatever, you don't want this product because blah, blah, blah. I mean, you, you, want, to, you want to roughly customize the information to the person who's uh, reading, uh, but, but the most important thing is uh, giving you information that you can use that's valuable to you and also giving you a sense of, uh, an accurate sense of, of, of mastery over, over the the details that matter about that product so regarding Cisco and Ebert, basically the problem with them in, from your perspective was that they were saying, um, the movies that you like are no good. And the movies that you don't like are good. And, and why are we telling you this? Because we're good. We're so sophisticated. We went to film school and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not useful. Right. I don't care. I don't care what Gene Cisco thinks of a movie. Ultimately, I want to know what I will think of that. Moment. Right. So to, to, so to take the other side of uh, what you were saying about the reviews, when you do the, you know, here, here are the, you know, top 30 uh, smartphones or, you know, here's the top 15 laptops you should consider for Christmas uh, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. um, that, that side reminds me of, and not to, derail this completely into uh politics and fake news but it it reminds me of one of the issues that i have uh with news and with cnn in particular of mm -hmm. taking this taking this mindset of i'm not going to tell you what the news is i'm going to give you a bunch of random news a bunch of random information um i'm going to create this false equivalency but ultimately i'm going to leave it up to you the viewer to decide what's right, what's wrong, what's real, what's not. And right. while I, while I respect that, I'm, I can, I can understand the kind of the warped logic that 
comes from, <laughs> but ultimately yeah. it's like, no, you know, like my, my, my parents, my grandparents or whatever, you, you know, you grew up with Walter Cronkite or Ted Koppel or whatever. And it's like, that was your trusted source. Like it, it wasn't his job to just spew information at you and leave it up to you. It was his job yeah. to like distill it. <laughs> right. Well, this is, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty, um, picky about my news sources. Um, I tend to avoid TV news um, entirely. Um, I think Neil Postman, in his book, um, Amusing Ourselves to Death, pointed out that everything on TV is entertainment, um, that, that even the news is designed to be a source of entertainment. The metrics and the, and the, uh, right. the it's a Darwinian contest to see who can make the most compelling news shows and what makes it compelling? It, it strikes your uh, emotions, right? And so in the case of Fox News, they, they keep perfecting the art of making you fear and hate. In the case of CNN, they perfect the art of making you fear, to a certain extent, hate to a little bit. But they're, they're, they're basically groping in the darkness for any emotional, to, to squeeze the events of the day into something that will cause your heart to beat faster. You know, I feel like um, that to to an extent that that didn't used to be the case. That I feel like yeah. in you know when I was growing up, that ABC, NBC, CBS, you know your your standard network news. Um, certainly, they wanted to have higher ratings and they wanted viewership, but they they did the news for the sake of the news, and and I and I don't think it was looked at as a profit center, and and I think it was sort of after the advent of cable and after the advent of CNN and, 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 and things like that. And the 24, 24 hour news cycle that things shifted and the networks, you know, made, you know, put, put the news into the entertainment category and started having it have, uh, you know, different, different metrics to, to, to be measured by to say, well, no, you know, if you can't, you know, if, if you can't, uh, compete and get us ratings, then, you know, then we're going to have to cut this. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, we've been evolving and then the internet took it up to a whole new, another level and now uh, algorithmic sorting rewards the most emotive content that is most polarizing and most damaging to society. I, I, I don't recall who said it, but it was a great, uh, it was a great line. Basically, everyone slows down to take a look at a car accident by the side of, of the road. And the way the internet works is that it sees that people do that, and so they produce a lot more car accidents. It's true. Um, that, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, I, and I don't really know how you, you know, uh, how you get away from that anytime soon. I mean, you know, it's like if, if the entire, like, economic model is built on, page views or viewership and ratings and stuff. And it's like, it, that's where the incentive is. Um, you, know, you can I, solve it for yourself. You can't, you can't solve it for society and we can't, uh, but you can solve it for yourself. I mean, we solved a long time ago. You basically subscribe to a publication and read uh, that you trust and read that publication, at least skim it cover to cover and read the things that, uh, that, that call to you. I mean, this is a, there's a perfect case where the internet, um, has changed something, has, has transformed something that worked into something that didn't work. 
if you were to ask any anybody in the 20th century what the pur purpose of journalism w was, or even now you can ask people, and they'll say, well, to, to create an informed citizenry in a democracy. Well, based on that metric, we took something that was working beautifully and we broke it. And now we everybody says, well, there's nothing you can do. Uh, meanwhile, people are fleeing uh, newspapers and magazines as fast as they can. Well, that's what you can do. You can read good publications and you can read broadly across the political spectrum, which is what I do. I mean, I read, I read uh, uh, The New Yorker, um, which is a leftist publication, but very, uh, very intelligent, well-written. I read the, uh, the Economist, which is, if anything, slightly right of center, uh, but generally, uh, fairly neutral and very well written. I read the National Review, which is often very, very good and fair and, and, and right wing. I read Reason Magazine, which is an interesting perspective. Um, you know, and, and so you can, you, those magazines still exist. Read them. And, and, and don't get your news from social because they'll, they'll, they'll just take you down a rabbit hole and make you think the world is different than it really is. Right. Well, and that, uh, as we get into more, uh, uh, deep fake videos and, 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 and kind of the rise of, uh, deep fake audio, uh, attacks, uh, that's going to get way worse because yes, <laughs> if, if, if you can fool people with fake news now, imagine how much you can fool them if you have a even remotely convincing video. The problem also is I tend to think that that's going to be a problem in the short term. But the longer term problem is that video will no longer be evidence of any kind. So you think about all the all the uh, political events that happened because we saw a video, you know, the Rodney King, King video and, the, you know, so many of the things that we um, that have happened in the past where we go, well, I wouldn't have believed it, but I, but I saw the video and, and uh, you know, or people have been caught, you know, on video right. saying things or whatever. We're going to get to the point in, you know, 10 years where no matter what, ha you know, you could record somebody committing a major crime on video. I'm going to say, oh, that's just a deep fake, you know, that's, and everybody go, yeah, you know, that's, of course, it's probably a deep fake. Or, you know, more likely half the people will think it's a deep fake and half the people will, people will just, it's just another, it's more fodder for confirmation bias. Videos will, will prove nothing, sway nobody, and they'll basically just reinforce, they become Rorschach tests. Right. You know, if, if you'll see a video, and if what you're seeing in the video um, is not compatible with your worldview, you'll say, well, there, that other, those other people, there they go again lying with video. If it confirms your worldview, right. they'll go, well, see, there it is. There's proof that I'm right. Well, and like you said, you know, that, 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 that's, uh, that's not a big leap. I mean, we're, you know, we're already no, there. We're, you know, the, the fact that there's there, a, yeah. the fact that there's a measurable segment of the population that believes the Alec Joneses of the world, that something like, you know, the, the Newtown you know, school shooting just didn't happen and that it was all a false flag by the government is mind blowingly insane. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, the, the, the best case that I've heard of recently was that uh, uh, President Trump showed up to a UFC event and yeah. and and the pro-Trump people heard him being cheered and the anti-Trump people heard him being booed. We all heard the same videos. Right. It's like the new, uh, you know, what color is the dress? Yeah, exactly. Blue gold. <laughs> it, it's really it's really discouraging. Um, but there, there's hope. 
the hope is that you can opt out of this whole madness yourself. You can't fix the world, but you can you can um, optimize uh, how how well informed you are and avoid getting sucked into the emotion driven, algorithmically so, uh, determined uh, madness that uh, sort of characterizes all this kind of stuff. And ultimately, I think we we can still arrive at um, something approximating the truth. I mean, the, the, the days of three three network uh, news channels every night all saying essentially the same thing. That was no nirvana either. They were meeting all kinds of information. And when they decided they were not going to mention something, it basically didn't exist. I mean, it, right. you know, all the all the White House press knew Kennedy was having affairs left and right. Everybody knew, knew that uh, FDR, this is back in the radio days, everybody knew FDR was in a wheelchair. The president of the United States was in a wheelchair and most people didn't know it. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and so and 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 that's it, it's valid to say that you can you can try to disconnect. I think that that uh, you know, f- it, it does become increasingly challenging though for like let's say you know my my parents or whatever. It's like you know because then oh, yeah. you still have, you still have to go and, and do some research. I mean, you 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 name some very good publications on you know both sides of the of the of the middle. Um, yeah, and 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 that is a valid approach. But like you know, you did have to first kind of like you have to know that first you have to do the research to know, okay, this is a, this is a publication that is a little bit left. This is a publication that's a little bit right, but ultimately they're, you know, they're telling credible, uh, you know, doing credible news in a, in an, in an intelligent way and giving me different perspectives. But that's, you know, that there's a, there's a, there's an amount of effort that goes into getting there. Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, it's kind of an odd, unexpected things has accompanied the rise of fake news and divisive media and propagandists and trolls and, and all the rest, which is that people have become less tolerant of people holding uh, strange views. And I would have thought that we would become more tolerant of that. So, you know, the, the fact is that, I mean, the way I um, sleep at night is that I have accepted in my own mind that most people are pretty delusional about most things. The human mind is just a, um, a, a junkyard of cognitive biases and uh, logical inconsistencies and superstitions and false perceptions. And that's true of even scientists, even, you know, lots of people. And, you know, there's a hyper accelerated process where people are profiting from misleading people and giving people a false worldview, essentially using people trying to get them riled up so they'll support whatever cause is, is, uh, that person is profiting from. Um, but, I mean, wh- when was the golden age when our parents weren't deluded and sort of out of touch? I mean, it, it right. never really existed. And, you know, I was, a, I was a, in, a, in a coffee shop uh, in California, I don't know, maybe a year ago. And, uh, you know, I, somehow I struck up a conversation with this really sweet lady uh, who was retired, and we were talking about, um, the state of the world and how everything was screwed up. And she's like, she's like, Oh, you know, I belong to this group. And we're, we try to, um, we try to support democracy and democratic principles and ideals. And we oppose, you know, fake news and we oppose the, the general current in the, in the, uh, political scene of, of this like nasty popular. And like we were super on, on the same page about what we were saying, right? What she was uh-huh. saying, I was like, I was like, okay, this is great. You know, this is great. This lady is. Got a lot of time. She's she's working toward you know solving this problem, and then she gets and then she says, for example, one of the best 
publications is is RT. <laughs> RT Russia Today is a is a propaganda public yeah. uh, news news organization that what they the way that they um, work their magic is that they they do a lot of straightforward legit news, and then like thirty percent of it is you know Kremlin propaganda. And so she's thinking that RT is this amazing breath of fresh air, uh, promoting uh, freedom and democracy. And I just, I was just like, no, no, ma'am, <laughs> no, no. Uh, and I tried to explain it, and she was just confused. And you know, I, so it's it's tough. It's really right. really tough. And there, there's an evolution. There there are multiple evolutionary processes taking place that are harmful to people. We um, have distracting. Things are on the internet. How distracting games are. How distracting social is. Uh, there's an evolutionary process to find the best way to dis- deliver fe- effective fake news. The, the, the goal of which, the, the Russia version of fake news, is to make you suspect all information and to not believe in anything or not trust anyone. That that's that's a difficult project that uh, has was essentially developed by the KGB during the Cold War and is spilled into Europe and across the world and into the United States and our own political uh, leaders are using this because it, it works. And it's really right. beneficial to keep everybody confused and not knowing what's true and what's false, especially if you, you, know, if you want to uh, uh, steal from the public. Um, it's, it's really effective to have people think that you're doing the opposite and to not really be sure and to think that the crimes that you're committing are, you know, are identical morally to the the, the crimes that you, that you say the other side is committing, et cetera. So it's, it's really problematic. And, and the problem with all this rapid ev- evolution is that as human beings, we're not evolving very fast. Uh, we're evolving very slowly. And so right. um, um, anyway, there, there will be a, a backlash and a reaction. We'll, we'll figure out some way to counteract this stuff a bit better. Um, one way that we've figured out to counteract it is through publication, uh, through social media like TikTok. Everybody's so afraid to talk or to read anything substantive that they just uh, they escape into absolute pointless frivolity. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Pizza, which, which, by the way, is censored by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, but they censor it in such a way that you know they don't want anybody talking about Xi Jinping, right? They don't want anybody criticizing the president of China. But they don't just say, "Oh, you can't criticize the president of China." They say, "You can't criticize any president." And, the, and or, or any independence movement, not just the Chinese independence movement. You can't criticize any of So basically, they ban substantive conversation or speech of any kind on TikTok. And so it's just the most frivolous, pointless, uh, waste of time. It's super addictive, right? You just want to go look at, at all these, like, you know, 15-year-old doing pranks and all this kind of stuff right. for six seconds or whatever it is. And, you know, it's just, it's digital soma designed to pacify the masses. And that's really, I think, where a lot of people are going. Yeah. I, yeah, I've, I've been saying for a couple of years now that, uh, I, assuming the world still exists, I look forward to the point, you know, 10, 20 years from now when there's all the like in depth history, uh, you know, research, you know, the, all the books that come out about this era and, right. and what went down and, right. and, uh, trying to understand it. And, and like the other day was the, uh, the anniversary of the, the Berlin wall, uh, coming down. And my son and I were talking about, 
uh, the Cold War and 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 how that was kind of that was that was the quote unquote end of the Cold War and you know we quote unquote won. And I said, right. and for twenty years, I believed that. I mean, I was I was in I, you know I I joined the Air Force uh, you know not long after that, and it was funny because we got to tech school and they sat us down and and proceeded to try to tell us, you know, like don't don't believe that the Cold War is over. The Soviet Union is still our biggest enemy, and we all kind of like laughed. We're like, no, we don't have a big enemy anymore. We're done. You know, we won. Right. And 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 to to look at it now, though, I'm like, wait a minute. They like let us think we won, <laughs> and yeah. meanwhile, they've been plotting for 20 years while we had our guard down, and and now they've come back and we're completely unprepared. Like, uh, I mean, right. and, and I mean, that's, this is all like speculation on, on, on my part based on, you know, whatever, you know, I, I've tried to piece together myself, but it just seems to me like when the Soviet union collapsed and Putin was in the KGB that he immediately started kind of putting pieces in place and you know, on, on a, on a, a long con that nobody saw coming. Right. Well, I mean, they call them, they call them shadow wars. And they figured out how to uh, damage us through through endless war without us even knowing there's a war. Like we're not fighting war against against Russia. They're fighting one against us, but we're not fighting one against them. Perfect. And it's and and in 2016, it was real easy to look at that, you know, and see what was unfolding, and 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 think that it was just between us and them, but it's not because then you look at the United Kingdom and you look at Brazil and you look at like that, the same sort of disinformation campaign is, you know, being used globally. Oh yeah. Yep. In fact, it was, it was used on us after, uh, after it was used on, you know, central Europe and Ukraine, et cetera. Um, we, we sort of like, we got the, the slightly more perfected version, uh, by the time the 2016 uh, election came around. Um, Let's let's switch gears. When you when you were doing your 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 intro, you talked about um, uh, your uh, nomadic existence, yeah. um, and uh, that's actually something that I have uh, followed with uh, great envy. Uh, and it's you know, and you and I have talked about it in the past about how you know that, that that's a thing I would very much love to do. I mean, right now I still have uh, you know younger kids, and my daughters in yeah. dance, you know, thirty hours a week, and so I can't just you yeah. know up and go to the other side of the country, uh, other side of the globe right now. You could, you could, but you probably don't want to. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but you know, if you know, once once my daughter uh, you know goes off to college, and and you know we hit that empty nest phase, like there's nothing about what I do for a living that ties me anywhere. Like I could, you know, like, right. like what you're doing, like I could, I could be anywhere in the world. And as long as I can get an internet connection, I can do what I do. Exactly. You can get an internet connection almost every, anywhere. And the surprising thing that will shock many people is that it can be much cheaper to live uh, internationally than to live in the United States of uh, owning or renting a house. Well, I, I think that that makes perfect sense. Like, I mean, so, so, you know, obviously there's a big difference between going on a vacation to Mexico for like say a month um, where you still have a mortgage and you still have all your bills at home. And I mean, that, that's one thing, but if you, if you kind of divest yourself of all of those sort of worldly possessions um, and, and you, you know, so now you don't have a mortgage payment, you don't have all these, these financial obligations back here in the United States and you just live there and you live in more of a 
you, you live in a community. So you're not staying, you know, you're not staying in a, you know, $300 a night hotel. Um, you know, I can see where, it, you know, the money that I make would go much farther. Yeah. And, and the, the, the part, this is why people think, you know, you know, traveling all the time is super expensive because everybody's experience of travel is, wow, that was a, a, a devastating uh, hit to my wallet. And, and it's for exactly the reasons you're saying. The, the way I would express that is twofold. One, you're paying twice for everything, at least twice. So you're paying for shelter at home that's unused, and then you're paying shelter wherever you are. You're paying for transportation at home, the car sitting in the driveway, but you still have to make your payment on that, pay the insurance, all that stuff. And then you're paying for taxis, trains, airplanes, all that stuff, wherever you are. Um, you're paying for food. Um, to a lesser extent, you're duplicating the food because there's food that's like spoiling in your house while you're out uh, doing, uh, buying more food. And, and then the other part of it is what I call the vacation tax, which is that everything is more expensive when you're on vacation. The, the, the roof over your head is way more. Like, you, you know, it'd be reasonable to pay 30 to $50 a day for, uh, to live in a, in a sort of average place in the U.S. Um, and, you know, like you say, you can spend, you can spend 80 to $300 a day to have a roof over your head while on vacation. Um, people tend to eat in restaurants and that's very expensive compared to cooking at home. And so when we live nomadically, yeah, we go to restaurants and occasionally we even stay in hotels, but for the most part, we're, we're uh, staying in um, Airbnbs. We're paying weekly or monthly rates. So you, you, can, you can get like 60% off the, the nightly rate if you stay for a month, typically, um, which just brings the cost way down. And then you, if you stick around long enough, like if you're around for at least a month, you can go to the store and you can buy olive oil and all these other things for cooking at home that like last a while. And you're essentially just buying groceries just like everybody else. And the cost of living is very low because it's actually very expensive to live in the United States. And, and you, the, the, but the more important factor is that you can, um, you know, well, pe people don't look at it this way. But the way I look at it is that your, your expenses are relatively fixed, right? Give or take some amount, some percentage. Your expenses are relatively fixed. You can't opt out, for example, of your mortgage payment for, you know, you can't, just tell the bank, you know, I'm just not going to pay it this month. I'll, I'll, I'll pick it up later. No, no, you, <laughs> you got to pay it, right? You got to pay the stuff you got to pay. Kids need to, you go to the dentist and you have to have health care and all that stuff. You got to pay all that stuff. It's, it's, I'm not saying it's fixed, but it's kind of fixed. Your income is not fixed. So you could, you know, you could suddenly get laid off. You could uh, suddenly, you could suddenly win the lottery. You could, you know, the, the, you can't rely on your income as much as you can rely on your expenses is what I'm saying. Right. When you're nomadic, when you're nomadic, actually, the most flexible part is your costs. You can, you can decide, you know what? I'm going to launch a business. I need to raise like $20,000. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, uh, I'm going to move to a very, very inexpensive, I'm going to move to Chiang Mai, uh, Thailand, where a lot of digital nomads go. I'm going to pay $250 a month in rent for two years. And I'm going to raise all that money without any investors, I'm going to have that money to plow into my new business. You can do that. Right? Where are you going to go in the United States where you can pay $250 a month in rent? It doesn't right. exist. So it's, it's a very, it's a very, it's not, it's not that it's cheaper. It can be much more expensive. You go to Switzerland and you could be broken like two days. 
uh, or you can go to Ecuador and you can, you know, really stretch your money. The point is, it's very flexible. You get on a plane, go to another place, you live there, and it's the cost of living is what it is when you get there. Well, and, you know, aside from the sort of cost-benefit analysis of, you know, how far does your dollar go, there's just being able to experience the world and, and, and interact with other cultures. And, and I, you know, it's like, I think, I mean, I was, I was, um, when I was in the air force, I was uh, stationed in England. I was in Turkey during desert storm. Um, I, I spent a month, uh, like five weeks in Vietnam, uh, in Hanoi when we adopted my daughter. Um, and so, you know, I've done some, some international travel, and, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, I, you know, we're going to now tie this back to the sort of the fake news thing. A lot of people have, you know, very strong feelings about other cultures and other, other countries based on nothing. And if you just went there and met some people and, and had, and had, had a beer or some coffee with some people, you'd, you know, have a totally different perspective on the world. It's based on worse than nothing. It's based on, uh, uh, all kinds of bad information. It's not just a lack of information. It's a, it's an extreme lack of information, but also the little bit you get tends to be very bad. So a perfect example, I mean, I'm in Mexico City, but a perfect example is like, you know, a lot of the people who, um, who go to the U.S. as immigrants are, you know, they're less educated, less skilled workers and so on. And, and the, that's why it's so shocking to come to Mexico City and see all these sophisticated urbanites in, uh, you know, uh, super well-educated people, well-traveled, uh, amazing like restaurants, uh, and you're like, wait a minute, I I thought you know Mexicans were like the people who were you know uh, picking strawberries uh, and so on. No, those are the ones who who th- th- those are the ones that, uh, that that the U.S. demands, um, and and the cult and the culture is the same way. I mean, we um, we we do. Uh, my wife has a business where she does uh, experiences. So we bring together some foodies for a week. We live in a really beautiful place and we explore the food culture. And one of the things we do in Mexico is we have tequila and mezcal tasting. Well, for most people, tequila is a nasty uh, thing that you take quick shots of when you're in college. You get completely hammered and wake up regretting everything and needing to apologize to people. Like that. This is what we think of as tequila. Well, we're, we're tasting tequila. You know, it's, it's organic, very, very sophisticated tequila that is just an exquisite beverage no burning of the throat it's like it has this amazing you can really taste the agave and then mezcal is even more sophisticated mezcal and tequila the high end is a very 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 sophisticated beverage it's more sophisticated than whiskey in general because for example with mezcal the plant you get it from in in, in the most extreme cases takes 30 years to grow and then you kill the plant when you make mezcal so you're talking about a, a thing that you, they wait they wait three decades to make that mezcal and, you know, it's, it's very, and why aren't Americans drinking that mezcal? Because we don't demand it. Like right. the demand for tequila in the U.S. is, for the most part, we, we have bad taste <laughs> by demanding the worst tequila. So, it's, not, it's not Mexico, it's us. Right. And so that's another factor that, uh, that, that, that affects people. And this is why you just have to travel. You have to travel and live with people, not just like see them from the other side of the uh, resort fence. You have, you have you have to have neighbors and, and shop in the same markets and, and get to know people and make friends in foreign countries and live there for, for weeks or months to really start to uh, have an accurate perception of the world. I mean, if, if you if, when a lot of people who read uh, uh, the, the, the kind of news that we were talking about earlier, they would think Mexico's on fire. There's like 
violence everywhere. There's, well, they're all, they're all uh, rapists and drug dealers. Exactly. And, and you hopefully, know, like, hopefully while you're down there, you're collecting the money for the wall for us. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I am doing. And, and, but, but what's, what's really amazing is that, uh, that if you actually have lived in Mexico, I've lived in Cancun, I've lived in, uh, um, Mexico city a lot, I've been, been all over, lived all over Mexico and Mexicans are the, the, the most, uh, interesting thing about Mexicans is they're extremely polite, friendly, nice, gentle, uh, yeah. people. And, and, and that's like a, that's like a universal. This, this is the thing that's really uh, disheartening about bad information that people get through the media, et cetera, is that they will believe the false perception rather than their own eyes. If you spend too much time on social media, uh, reading the news and get caught up in all the political stuff and all that, you think the world's on fire and you go outside and the birds are singing and it's very pleasant. You live in a nice area and your kids are happy yeah. and there's, there's it's a also easy the to... and, and you don't, you reject your own eyes. You know, it's, it's also like easy to, um, kind of uh, hold the entire country accountable yeah. for bad leadership. I mean, like, like I can totally understand, like uh, there's people probably around the world who think the United States sucks now uh, because, you know, what you see is Trump and I can understand coming to that conclusion. <laughs> but, uh-huh. and, and like right now, I'm not a huge fan of the government of Turkey. I don't like them. But right. I spent a lot of time in Turkey with the people of Turkey and, I, and, I, and I'm fairly sure, I mean, I haven't been there in, you know, few decades but uh yeah i'm fairly sure that the people that i met like just in and around uh you know the air base um are not uh you know genocidal <laughs> maniacs or whatever you know they're, right. they're they're just people trying to you know live in their community and, and run their business and they were the you know it, you know you know we we'd go shopping um and it's like every every shop you went into they'd ask you to sit down they'd get you a beer like you could, you could drink for free all day in Turkey because you just go shopping and, and everyone will give you yeah. a beer. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing how nice everyone is. And this has been universal truth about everywhere we've gone. We've, we've been to Kenya. We spent a lot of time in Turkey. We've lived in Turkey for months and um, we lived in Istanbul and Kushidasi. Um, we've, we spend, we spend months every year in Morocco, um, all over Europe. A ton of time in Mexico and Central America, and uh, yes, bad things exist. There's violence and horrors out there, um, but um, but in general, the the reality of life is that um, people are pretty great, and uh, most places are are functioning uh, well, you know, much better than you think. And the other thing that's uh, also surprising to a lot of people is that we think uh, in the U.S. that everybody is like you know, freaked out about our president. Um, and, you know, the, the better educated are, but the majority of them, when I, you know, when the subject comes up, it's like, well, you think he's bad. You should see our guy, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I go to Italy a lot and it's like, uh, they're like, oh, he's like, he's like a, he's nothing compared to Berlusconi and, um, you know, et cetera. So, so like, you know, they're more worried about their own nut jobs than, than ours. Right. Or, or at the very least, it's like, you know, you could look at it and go, wow, that is horrible. But, you know, that's not, you know, that's not, that's not new to us. You know, yeah. uh, you know I, I actually remember, um, you know, when I was in, uh, when I was in England, um, I forget what the incident was, but there was something that happened, you know, with a bombing of some sort. And I, I, I there were some people that I met in England who were like, 
yeah, but you know, we've been living with the, you know, and this is kind of post IRA, but you know, we live with the IRA forever. Like, you know, it was just a yeah. normal thing that you, anywhere, anywhere you went, it could blow up. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, and, and also uh, during World War II, uh, Hitler was just lo- lobbing rockets into London and they and just suddenly right. the entire neighborhood could explode and everyone would die. And that could happen at any second. And they lived through that for years. Right. Um, so yeah, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to take up your entire day. I want to circle back real quick. Just as a, a funny story about about the tequila. Um, yeah. My dad's birthday was uh, Friday, and you know, I called him up and, and I said, you know, happy birthday, and, and you got any big plans? He's like, no, I'm just, uh, you know, uh, you know, Barb is my my stepmom. He's like, Barb, Barb's making some dinner, and uh, we're just having we're sipping some tequila. We're gonna have some uh, chicken tortilla soup. And I was like, all right, hold up, let's back up to this sipping tequila thing. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, uh, you know, what are you drinking? And he was, uh, what was it? A Don, Don Julio Reposado. Yeah. Uh, and he said, yeah, this is, this is great stuff. And, and, and I said, you know, I, like, like you just, like you just relayed, you know, my, my initial, uh, sort of interaction with tequila was, you know, Cuervo gold and, you know, it's, you know, slam lick suck. You know, that's, that, that's how you drink tequila. Right. It, uh, you know, the idea is to taste it as little as possible. Right. And uh, fast forward a number of years. And um, uh, when I was living in Oxford, Michigan, my, my neighbor had gone, uh, he and his wife had gone to Mexico. And when they got back, he said, Hey, you want to you know, try this tequila? I said, yeah, sure. So he gets it and he pour, you know, pours, pours it in a glass and he's like, all right, here you go. And I'm like, you know, well, where's the salt? Where's the lime? He's like, Whoa, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> he's like this is you, you don't want to that would that would be a tragedy to to drink yeah. this tequila that way he's like this is a sipping tequila and i was like that does not even compute in my brain what a sipping tequila is but it really is you know when you get yeah. good tequila it 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 really makes a huge difference and, and in fact my dad said that he does in fact have cheaper tequila for like making margaritas because he's like I would never make a margarita with the Don Julio Reposado. Yeah, I would. <laughs> but that, that, that's just me. I mean, my, my wife makes sangria. Uh, she's made sangria with like a $65 bottle of wine. And it's not just like, like you know, we have, you know, a, a ton of money. It's just that we, uh, we want, you know, we think really, really high quality food is worth it. That, that may be partly a generational thing too. You know, your dad is, uh, um, I don't know how old he is, but and you know, people who are some slightly older than us tend to have uh, be much more frugal about things and much more practical about things. Um, so I wanted to, to kind of wind down by t- asking a question that kind of ties some of the stuff together, which is, as you've traveled around um, and and lived in all of these you know places around the world, um, what has been your perception? about how technology is seen and used outside of the United States. Like, you know, I mean, I have my view of like, you know, my, my, my whole world revolves around, you know, having the internet open on my screen 24 seven, basically. And my phone is always in my pocket and uh, you know, and, and, you know, I live and breathe technology, but I know that that's not even true of all Americans per se, but that's my reality. Um, But I'm just curious, you know, know, what, what are your, what are, what have you seen in terms of, technology and the internet outside of the United States versus in the United States, or is there just no difference? There is a difference um, uh, that I've noticed in different countries and things are changing. The social norms are different. Um, 
in general, in the Americas, um, North and South America, people tend to be very similar to the U.S., which is to say that, um, for example, I'm in a Starbucks right now. Um, there are probably a hundred Starbucks in Mexico City. Um, the, and half the people, just like in a U.S. Starbucks, or have a laptop and just sitting here working and so on. People are walking around, uh, and, and, you know, talking on the phone, using their phone, doing social media, posting on Instagram, all that kind of stuff. It's different in Europe. There's a lot more variety in Europe in terms of the penetration. I know that years ago we lived in Greece, and just to wear, just to just to walk down the street wearing earbuds, five years ago or ten years ago in Greece, people would look like look at you like you're from another planet. Like they didn't, they were like super confused. Nobody worked in public, and I used to go to you know bars like Greeks love to hang out in bars uh, they, they drink coffee and smoke cigarettes up to a certain point and then they kick it over to beer and cigarettes and I would be sitting there you know no beer no no cigarettes tons of coffee and I'd be working with my laptop in, in this bar and people were kind of like you know okay well yeah whatever right? <laughs> foreigners they're like just nobody can but now you know it's like that's loosening up there's there people are, so you know to, to a certain extent there's a a rate of change that um, happens. The other thing is there's a lot of stuff that hits, a lot of consumer tax that hits in the U.S. first because uh, the major companies are American. So, for example, we traveled with an Amazon Echo. Uh, we started traveling with an Amazon Echo like five, you know, three three years ago, or whatever, four years ago. And when we would bring that to Europe, they were they were literally like, "What is that? I've never even heard of that. I don't know what that is." And, um, and we gave, we actually gave our friends in Italy our, our Alexa because they loved it so much. They had been playing music through a laptop. I'm like, oh, no, 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 that sounds like crap. So, you know, this sounds much better. And they, they do a lot of dinner parties and stuff. So it's like, yeah, just, you know, uh, take it. So then we bought a new one. Uh, but now it, uh, the Amazon Echo is fully available in Italy. You can just buy it and people are familiar with it and didn't know what it is. Back in the Google Glass days, um, I used to wear Google Glass all over the place. We lived in Florence, Italy. And, um, and a few other places and literally nobody had heard of it. And a lot of people just politely sort of looked away, thought I had some kind of medical problem with my eyes or something, or, you know, they, they just assumed that it was like that I had, that I had, that it was a medical device or something, uh, which is great because I could just take pictures and <laughs> with the Google Glass. Um, so, so there, so mostly it's a pace of change. Eventually things are going to work more or less in, Every country, I'm guessing, roughly, as they do in the U.S., with the exception possibly, well, no, this would probably change too. But, like, I'm an old old guy, you know. It's like uh, I actually have a granddaughter. And uh, there are a lot of countries where, you know, people over the age of 40 just don't even use laptops or computers at all. They just, they're, they, the, the age difference in ability and inclination to use technology is much more extreme than it is in the U.S. Um, so that's uh, that's another difference. But for the most part, cell phones have taken over everything. I mean, people are. Um, although I guess I guess I you know in a in a country like Mexico, there's a lot of a lot of rich people, a lot of middle class people, a lot of poor people, and like you you see a lot of poor people with uh, you know they they're using like some pretty backward uh, feature phones. I mean, yeah, time travel. Um, but the, you know, the, all the hipsters and yuppies and stuff in all the neighborhoods where we live and hang out, they all, they all got iPhones and, you know, Android phones, but that's in the U S. 
Yeah, it's, but I, I I didn't write it, but I, I uh, there was an article published on my site uh, last week that talked about you know basically how you could start and run an entire business you know just with your smartphone and not not even have a a PC. Um, and, well, and can my, I give you a go ahead. Give you a story about that. Yeah. yeah. So we we go to Morocco a lot, and one of the things we like to do is go out into the Sahara Desert. And there's a guy that uh, named Hamid uh, who uh, he's a Berber. He runs this little business, and basically he started out washing dishes in a restaurant, and he, um, he saved like every penny, and he bought, eventually saved enough money to buy a camel, and then offered rides, and he bought another camel, another camel, another camel, and then he basically bought a tent, and like would take people out on the camel and sleep in the tent, and anyway, this kid's like 32 years old or something, and he's got this whole business, and he and his brother own a hotel now, and it, it really succeeded, like it's an amazing success story. And he runs his entire business on two phones. So why does he have two phones? Because he has a, he has a feature phone and a smartphone. The smartphone he uses for uh, processing and taking pictures and doing other things for his website. And the feature phone is the only phone will actually reach a cellular, will maintain a cellular connection if he stands on the top of a sand dune and holds his hand straight up like the Statue of Liberty. He can like, he can exchange like, like SMS with customers. So like every like 45 minutes, he goes to the top of the stand and he stands there with his hand in the air. And then he like pulls down the thing and he's like responds to queries that have come in from people who want to do tours or whatever. But it's really fascinating. And the total investment in technology that he's made with these two phones is probably equivalent to like 150 bucks. Yeah. Well, and he has a cheap ass ETE Chinese phone with a smartphone and like a ridiculously inexpensive feature phone. Yeah, for I mean, for and for years now, um, you know, my my wife is much more uh, adept with it. Like, I mean, she'll just do everything on the smartphone. I mean, she's got a laptop, but but that's like her for her, the laptop is the last resort. Yeah. And for me, I'll start doing something on the phone, and I'll be like, "Well, this is just frustrating. I'd rather do this on a computer." My wife's the same way. She she likes these long emails and long things on the phone, and I'm like. Why are you torturing yourself? Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah, I, I just, I, I can't really do that. And, I, and I, I often feel like the, the, the you know, the, the mobile website is not as good. And, and I don't know, there's right. just a lot of, there's a lot of things where I'm like, I'm just old school and I just want to, you know, it's like, it's great. It's great that I at least have the option to do it on my phone. Yeah. But if I can use a computer, I'd prefer to. Lately, I've been doing something really uh, unexpected uh, that I didn't expect it myself, but I've been really getting into my iPad. So I, I have a, uh, an Apple Pencil, which I have this strap that just hold, holds it to the side of the, of, of the case that I have. And so I always have the pencil with me. And I, love, I do a lot of blogging through Squarespace, and I love the, Square, the new Squarespace app for blogging. It's beautiful. It's super WYSIWYG. Um, and I use, you know, do an app to, to, to uh, compress the photos and all that kind of stuff. But lately, I find myself using voice dictation a lot for mm-hmm. writing emails and writing text messages. It, it's, it's so accurate. It's so easy. Um, and, then, and, and, and I'll navigate using the pencil. And I also use a, um, an app called um, Notable, which is a note-taking app, a visual note-taking app, sketch and draw pictures and all that kind of stuff. And I'm really loving that. So I basically always have my iPad with me everywhere I go. If I don't have a backpack on my back, I'm carrying it in my hand. That's cool. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, like years ago, I had uh, played around with um, Dragon, naturally speaking. And it's, I mean, great, yeah. great technology. Um, 
uh, you know, that, you know, it, it was a little bit rough back then, but it was still very, very good at the time. It was better, better than most other things at the time. Um, you know, but I, I generally like if I'm driving, I'll, I'll dictate text messages to, to my wife or my kids and, you know, I, Siri's, you know, pretty good <laughs> about getting that yeah. stuff. Um, I've never tried it. Like I, I, I should actually try like just using, uh, you know, the, the voice to text, uh, and just dictate a whole article and then go back through and see how many corrections I need to make. Yeah. I don't know about doing an article because the way I construct articles is very nonlinear in terms of how I do it. Um, but stuff like email, there's, there's, you know, the little microphone on the keyboard, you just tap that and start yapping. It'll get some stuff, you know, get 5% of it wrong. And then you go back and fix that. But it tends to be really fast. And, you know, I basically, um, you know, I, when I use a computer, I use, um, computer glasses. Um, and it's great to not even have to wear glasses to, to send an email or a reminder to myself or whatever. So voice is really great on that, uh, on that front as well. So I'm really looking forward. I don't know if I'm going to get a Pixel 4, but I, I assume that uh, Google's new, um, voice translation feature is going to come to all the phones and um, all the you know all the Pixel phones, so I have Pixel three. So I'm I'm looking forward to just you know taking advantage of that and capturing um, you know capturing everything that's said. Perfect for a podcast. You can just have it transcribe the whole podcast and you just post that. Right. You know, great for SEO. Great for enabling people to discover your podcast. Very cool. All right, so the, you know, let's let's go ahead and wind down. But um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, like where people can find you. I know you're now doing the uh, Mike's List uh, newsletter. Yes. yes. So um, I would recommend people go to Elgin.com, which is my website. I, I have multiple websites and multiple things and social and all that stuff. But uh, Elgin.com. I'm also on Twitter at Mike Elgin. So it's M I K E E L G A N. Mike's List is a weekly uh, newsletter that's free and ad-free as well. And basically, the list part of it is basically the most insane things that happen in the world of technology that week. And uh, it's a list of 10 things. And then beyond that, I do a little bit of commentary and so on. I think it's the greatest newsletter in the history of mankind, but um, that's just me. So I, I, but I, do, I, I would ask people give it a try. I think you really enjoy it if you like technology. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I find it interesting because you know, you're, 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 uh, curating for me some of the, yeah. <laughs> some of the stuff that yeah. I don't have time to go do go look at all those things myself. Well, a lot, of, a lot of the people who follow me are tech journalists and, um, people who are extremely, uh, active and finding out information because I find stuff that they miss because I, I look for the really obscure stuff that's also crazy. So if you already if you know it all already, I most of the things on my list are still going to be new to you. And a lot of people who don't follow the tech uh, very closely, they don't know the difference between information that everybody knows and information that nobody knows. It's all just information they don't know. And so right. uh, the, the more novice, the, the least the, the people who read less uh, tend to not be able to appreciate Mike's list because they don't realize how <laughs> how how I save them from not knowing this. Uh, frivolous piece of uh, ridiculous information that some crazy person is doing in <laughs> technology somewhere. Very cool. Um, well, I want to, I want to thank you for taking the time. Um, you know, I know you're, uh, you know, down there uh, living, living the good life in, in Mexico city. So uh, um, I appreciate you joining me. Uh, and 
yeah, I'm going to have to go do some uh, tequila research now. Yeah, me too. I, I'm, I am in Mexico City, so the, the, uh, the researching uh, of tequila just never sleeps, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> thank you, Tony. I, re- I really appreciate you having me on your uh, podcast. All right. Talk to you later. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions you'd like to see answered in future posts.